0: Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. Today, we are joined by Dr. James Nicolantonio, who I've interviewed in the past for his book, The Salt Fix, and he's written a number of other books. But The one we're going to talk about today is the upcoming one uh, that he and I both wrote, uh, which is Superfuel, which talks about fats and the importance of them and how to discriminate between the good and the bad fats and what is Uh, really a healthy fat. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So um, you had basically done compiled most of the research on this and invited me to uh, contribute to it. So I was happy to, especially knowing the work you did with The Salt Fix, which was really uh, an important book that helped change many people's views on the dangers of salt or the importance of salt for health. So uh, what motivated you to write this book?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, so this is kind of like uh, you know ketogenic diet 2.0, right? It's I mean everyone's doing keto, keto diets now, where their diets are mostly 70, 80 percent fat, mm-hmm. and it was kind of like how do we enhance that diet? I mean, you know, what's a, what's what's the healthy fats, and what type of fat should people be eating since it's making up the majority of their calories? And I think a lot of people doing the ketogenic diet, they're doing some things right, but they're doing a lot of things wrong, and so this book was really to build off of. Um, You know, a diet that that is dramatically improving people's lives, but we can actually enhance their lives by selecting good fats versus bad fats. And we really—that's really what the motivation was for this book.
0: Yeah, it's pretty uh, sad actually, because many people just simply summarize keto or paleo as being high fat, and well, that is—it's really uh, not uh, the full picture. And if you choose the wrong fats, you're going to actually run into more problems than if you had replaced those with, with uh, healthy carbs, because, uh, in general, I think there's a lot more danger from eating, uh, damaged fats in the risk from, from processed carbohydrates.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And the, the primary reason, well, you can expand on it, but I've got my guesses, but why don't you, why don't you tell us why?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, really it's about almost matching what, what the fats we ate during paleolithic times. So really the three main changes that occurred in our intake, in regards to fat was we started consuming industrial vegetable, also known as seed oils, which we'd never had in our past. Our intake of omega-6 doubled or tripled, and our intake of omega-3s, both plant and marine-based, went down at least tenfold. And so we've had these dramatic changes in our fat intake, and they they actually change us from the inside out. And so really, omega-6 isn't bad necessarily. It's when you isolate it, and you adulterate it. That makes it extremely bad. So we have these bottles of omega-6 now um, that are on shelves. They're 24-7 exposed to light. Then we cook with them. That oxidizes the oil further. Then we consume these isolated oils. They don't have the natural vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and the coatings around seeds and nuts that give us omega-6 to protect them from oxidizing in our body. And so when you consume these isolated oils, even if it's like a cold press omega-6, the acid in your stomach will still oxidize those oils and create uh, lipid hydroperoxides and aldehydes. And we absorb these and they cause a ton of damage. Um, And so really, like you said, the worst thing that's happening to our health is this increase in omega-6 and the half-life of omega-6 is anywhere from one to two years. So it stays with you. And really, if you look at our fat stores of omega-6, they've gone from under 10%, about 9% in our fat tissue to 23% in the last 50 years. And so we're just stockpiling this inflammatory omega-6, which is just absolutely wreaking havoc on our health.
0: Yeah, but there are, omega-6 and omega-3 are both essential fatty acids, it's essential meaning your body can't make them. You need the precursors to build them up and store them and and have healthy biological function. And the major danger from the having the wrong oils, from my understanding, is that as opposed to carbohydrates, carbohydrates are typically uh, burned as fuel relative or stored as glycogen and then burned as fuel shortly thereafter. I mean, if you get a really in excess, it's going to be stored as adipose tissue, but it's not damaged. It's pretty, it basically takes the precursors and build healthy fat. But when you're eating damaged fats, like most people do, then it's integrating your cell membranes. And those cells stick around for a long time. Some not so many, so long, but most of them are going to be around for a while. And then your cell membranes, if they're dysfunctional because they're wrong fats, you're going to run into loads of complications. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and the other point I want to mention, because I think it's a danger that many people have with respect to... Uh, understanding this concept is that they think, well, I'm not buying that vegetable oil on the grocery store shelf. There's none of that in my house, in fact, but what they don't understand, and this is the key is that there's stealth omega-6. And I want to talk about that because if you, if you, unless you're the rare person who just simply never eats out, <laughs> you're going to be exposed to this. I mean, that's why you have to be so ultra careful when you're, when you're eating out because that's where you're going to get loaded with it. I mean, it's just all, I mean, there are of course, restaurants that that don't do this, but almost all of them do, I say it's well over ninety five percent are using these cheap vegetable oils that uh, they used to cook with and and you know make their food. So once you comment on that and any other issues that you think contribute to it?
1: Yeah, no, that's I mean, that's a great point. So most of these restaurants are cooking their vegetables and meats in these uh, these omega six vegetable oils. and even, even oils that we consider healthy, like canola oil, when you cook with that, I mean, canola is like one of the worst oils you can cook with. It it causes a ton of oxidation products um, because they're so susceptible um, to heat because uh, of the double bonds. Um, and so, as you said, you're getting these in vegetable oils. I mean, they put soybean oil and these omega and these omega six seed oils in bread, um, in, in uh, you know condiments, and it's really everywhere. Cereals. Um, Pastries. Pastry. I mean,
0: yeah Yeah. Like the desserts. When they show you the dessert menu, you can almost be guaranteed, unless it's a fruit plate or something, there's going to be processed omega-6 in that dessert.
1: Exactly. And so, like you said, it's literally transforming you from the inside out because these these omega long chain omegas, they, they get integrated in the cell membrane and the oxidation products will oxidize those tails, those fatty acid tails. And what happens is, is when you damage those, those tails in the lipid bilayer, they start to curl upwards. And so that actually creates a more permeable membrane. So you get more things that aren't supposed to get into the cell, into the cell and damage the mitochondria, damage the DNA. And the fluidity of the cell membrane goes down. And so the fluidity of the cell membrane is extremely important because you have all these hormone transporters that sit in the cell membrane. And so when you don't get enough omega three, especially DHA, the membranes become very uh, rigid. And so what ends up happening is is those membranes start pinching on the trans membranes where that brings in sodium and, and potassium amino acids, glucose, and instead of being able to come in and out very easily, because, because the membrane is, isn't fluid, it starts pinching on those membrane brown transporters. And so that starts affecting how things start flow, flowing in and out of the cell. Um, and, and so your metabolic rate goes down and you have damage in the cell. And so it's a, it's a huge issue.
0: Yeah. And it's, uh, to extend that um, illustration even further, it's not just the cell membranes, but it's the organelles or the functioning structures within the cells. And the most important one, of course, being the mitochondria, because the mitochondria has not one but two membranes that are composed of these same lipids and fats. And if you run into the same problems as you just described. So it's not just the cell, it's the organelles within the cell.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point. Actually, probably one of the greatest damages that happens is you have this inner mitochondrial membrane and the, the cardiolipin is supposed to be saturated in DHA. And the reason why is because DHA is very susceptible to oxidation and it's actually the alarm system that our cells have to either survive, or if it's turning into a cancer cell, die. And if you don't have the cardiolipin saturated with DHA, you can't signal caspase-3 and you can't signal apoptosis. And so literally not having your cell membranes and your cardiolipin saturated with DHA can increase potentially your risk of a cell from going from healthy and being damaged and saying and flipping to apoptosis versus a cell that can't do that anymore if you don't have enough DHA. So it's very important to saturate the cardiolipin or the inner mitochondrial membrane with DHA to program cell
0: death if necessary. Yes, indeed. And uh, what was the, uh, can you describe in further detail the capsase 3 that you mentioned because many people don't know what that is?
1: Yeah. So it's basically the signal that cells use to trigger the, the self-destruction or self-kill mechanism. And so the cell has to have something to say, wait a second, damage is occurring. And it's it's gone to a point where we need to just get rid of the cell before it converts to a malignant cell. And the signal is DHA um, because it's, uh, you know, it's something that our, our bodies evolved off of for, you know, thousands, millions of years. And so it knows to utilize that DHA as the signal to either, Damage is going on. I need to upregulate antioxidant enzymes or too much. I need to kill the cell so it doesn't turn into a malignant one. And in the brain, actually, we utilize DHA as well as a signal to stimulate NRF2, stimulate hemoxygenase 1 and upregulate antioxidant enzymes. So omega-3s oxidizing in the body is bad, but our body actually kind of knows what to do with that signal. Whereas omega-6, not so much because we didn't have as much during, you know, paleolithic times
0: yeah i mean it's definitely one of the issues no question about it um, but there are other signals for apoptosis uh, you know such as uh, mTOR inhibition uh, and uh, also fasting which will uh, ca- uh, stimulate a cascade of metabolic events that that actually catalyze apoptosis appropriate apoptosis and these senescent cells and a senescent cell is a cell that's defined as one that's aged and crippled or damaged, and it's lost the ability to reproduce, and essentially becomes useless. Um, actually, it's worse than useless because it clogs up the machinery, and unless you get rid of that senescent cell, you're going to run into problems. It's just uh, it's gunk in the in machinery, and it's just clogging up your system. So you need a mechanism to remove those. Yep. That's a lot of people believe that's one of the keys to addressing some of the major hurdles of slowing down the aging process is the are these senescent cells. So um, yeah, the big issue is lowering o- omega-6, at so least damage omega-6, because as I said earlier, omega-6 and omega-3 are both essential. Your body needs them. It's really difficult to become deficient in omega-6 because of the abundance in our food supply, but you can, and I can think of people who are on IV nutrition because they're in a coma and they just cannot eat, uh, you know, or they're on um, parenteral nutrition, essentially either IV or through PO. And you, and you, those individuals can run into omega-6 deficiency if it's not put into the, the feedings that they're getting.
1: Yeah, I, you, I mean, you can, but the thing, like you said, is it's extremely difficult um, yeah. to do omega-6. And really the, the estimates right now, most people believe you need 2% of omega-6. Um, but really, when you look at the, the older studies, um, it, it really seems to be only about 0.5%. That, that, that's all you need. As long as you're getting sufficient omega-3, you, you may only need one or two grams of linoleic acid per day. And really, it, it blows my mind that the American Heart Association um, and the dietary guidelines are recommending that we consume at least you know, 5 to 10% of our calories as omega-6, and that yeah. we <laughs> get them from either vegetable oils or olive oil. Instead of actually recommending whole foods, they recommend consuming them via oils, which makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, when you have direct studies contradicting that that you need five to ten percent of your linoleic acid, and so if you look at the Lyon Diet Heart Study, they actually lowered linoleic acid from le- from over five percent to to about three and a half percent, and there was a seventy percent reduction in cardiovascular events and mortality by lowering linoleic acid. So there's actually no evidence to support the American Heart Association and our Dietary Guideline, recommending consuming high amounts of omega-6s from vegetable
0: oils. Well, let's just back up here to uh, linoleic acid. It's, it's really confusing that it's actually also has the acronym ALA, alpha-linoleic acid, and there's alpha-linoleic acid. And linoleic acid, I believe, is the omega-6, and linolenic acid is the omega-3. Perhaps. So it, it's commonly confused. <laughs> So, just wanted to make that clear. If you're confused, don't be surprised because it's common. But anyway, you mentioned reference to AHA, the American Heart Association, and uh, you shouldn't be surprised. If, maybe you need to do a cognoscopy on you because you're surprised because <laughs> this is the same organization that last year in 2017 said coconut oil was dangerous, and and now of course they have one of their uh, disciples, a German researcher from Harvard who's saying that coconut oil is pure poison, but it really stemmed from the the letter they sent out, the AHA sent out to a cardiologist last year, warning about the dangers of excessive coconut oil. And I'm not sure what drove that other than, and maybe you have some, some other insights in this, but just a concern not to appear that their 30 to 40 years of recommendations were fatally flawed would be one of my biggest, uh, theories as to why they persist in this fantasy
1: well really they, they they were no one until Procter and Gamble came along and gave them basically a 1.75 million dollar donation and of course Procter and Gamble were the ones who created Crisco which mm-hmm. is crystallized cottonseed oil which is an amazing. It was, a
0: it was a century ago now yeah it was
1: 1911 uh, over a century ago the story is is an interesting one and in how you know, that all came to be. And we could go into that if, if you want, but yeah, I, yeah, think, I, I think, think it's fun.
0: interesting. Yeah. So yeah. Elaborate.
1: Yeah. So it all really started the downhill um, of our health really began with the invention of the cotton gin. Um, and so, you know, in the United States, we were only able to produce about 600 pounds of, of cotton. And then along came the cotton gin. And within less than a decade, we were at, uh, in the late 1700s, in the United States, we were producing 40 million pounds uh, of cotton. And, of course, for every 100 pounds of cotton, you have 160 pounds of cotton seed. And you only need 5% of those seeds to plant the new crop. And so you have all these cotton seeds, and you have nothing to do with it. And so Procter & Gamble came along. They started producing candles and soaps instead of lighting homes and cotton seed oil. Well, what happened is the oil industry came along in the mid-1800s, and there goes the application of cotton seed oil for lighting homes. And so you have all this cotton seed oil, and you have no, no use for it. And so a, a German chemist came along in the early 1900s, and he discovered that if you took vegetable oils or a liquid oil, you added a catalyst, you added heat, and you removed hydrogen, you could convert a liquid oil to a solid. So he invented partial hydrogenation. I believe it was, you know, in 1909 he may have done that. Um, and this was uh, Wilhelm Norman, who was a German chemist, and Procter and & Gamble bought um, his patent, to partial hydrogenation in 1909, they opened their own lab and created Crisco in 1911. And so back then, were, I mean, you could advertise whatever you wanted. You could say Crisco will, will, you know, you'll live longer, your teeth will glow, your skin will shine, and your kids, you know, will have no issues. And there, no one monitored all of these things. And yeah. so that's what happened. They they created an, an entire recipe book. They were giving them all out for free. And of course, all the recipes contained Crisco and they were making all these claims that, you know, mothers, uh, they cook better cakes and pastries with Crisco and, you know, the digestion improves and it's, and all that. And so, you know, it went from nothing, consuming absolutely nothing until 1916. And in just one year in 1916, they sold 60 million pounds of Crisco way back 100 years ago. I mean, that is a lot of Crisco and that was over 100 years ago. And so it just got integrated and then Procter & Gamble, they did a radio show and gathered $1.75 million, gave it to the AHA, and launched them into, you know, the leading cardiovascular society that we know today. And it's still, you're still kind of in that box. What year was that? Um, I think it was- Around
0: 1960s. Early 1900s.
1: Yeah, 1960s, I think they did that with the oh.
0: AHA. So- because that's not a lot of money, really, huh? $1.7 when you consider all the <laughs> other craziness that's being done. And the literally the billions, literally billions would it be, dollars in fines that many companies are getting out, drug companies included, for their blatant violations and harming humans and causing an enormous suffering. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of money for some people, but for an organization to give another organization, it's a relatively minor amount. But uh, they were—they've do- been doing this for over a century, and it was, you know, promoted pro- largely because of its uh, benefits. Uh, I don't think refrigeration back then was a challenge. I don't—I th- think many people had ice boxes, but a lot of people didn't have electric refrigerators. I'm not even sure when that became more popular, but certainly not the early 1900s. Yeah. So you didn't have to refrigerate this stuff, so that made it a lot more convenient. Right. Yeah, and, uh, and it had look, a long shelf life.
1: Now it looked like uh, it was a solid fat, so people were used yeah. to cooking with lard and tallow, and now they had this weapon that they could say this could replace that. And really, you had the pressure of, you know, the the Great Depression. You had, um, you know, World Wars going on. You know, and and really, actually, they were using glycerol to make bombs. So actually, people back, um, I think it was, in, I think it was for war, man, I can't remember now, but it was one of the World Wars. I Think it was World War II. They were being asked to give their animal fats um, to. For the glycerol to be used to making bombs, and so they were almost forced into consuming these vegetable oils because you could cook with them at a fraction of the cost, and then you were, you know, they were being marginalized these animal fats to go to, to the army, um, and so really it was almost like forcing Americans in the in the 30s and 40s to to switch over to vegetable oils.
0: Well, a glycerol for those who aren't aware of it is the backbone of triglycerides. It's what all the fatty acids attached to. But I'm curious, why couldn't they just get the glycerol from the vegetable oil instead of having to get it from animal fats? Was it yeah, just easier an industrial process to do that, or?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not sure, um, but I do know they were rationing animal fats, and at the same time, it was becoming extremely expensive compared to these,
0: you know, cheap vegetable oils, yeah. and so, you know, now when Procter and Gamble first made Crisco. Was it was the fat that they used primarily cottonseed? It was cottonseed oil. Yeah. Now, why don't you update us? Because the to the best of my knowledge, cottonseed oil is not classified for human consumption. Is it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I they do. I mean, it's not a
0: human human consumption oil.
1: I think they do use a little bit of cottonseed oil now, but like, like you're saying, it's dramatically gone down. It's really soybean oil that they use
0: nowadays. Um, but I don't think for health reasons they didn't promote it. I mean, I thought, I thought it was not recommended or advised. I know it's being used, but it's… Ah, uh, I see what you're saying. It's not a food product. It's, it's an industrial crop. It's not designed for food. Cotton seeds are not food products.
1: Correct. I mean, you can't squeeze a cotton seed and get oil out of it. It takes tremendous machinery, multi-million-dollar machinery, heat, hexane. You know, this is really part of the problem with these industrial seed oils is is the processing that occurs to get them out of the seed. Right. Um, you're you're they have to deodorize the oil because it's so um, toxic and and you know. By the time it makes it to the shelf, it's already you got all these oxidation products in it and then you consume it and your body oxidizes it with the acid in your stomach. And you know, these oxidation products are higher, about a thousand fold higher than the eicosanoids in your body. Um, they are dramatically more harmful than any of the most harmful eicosanoids like thromboxane A2 that you could ever think of because they form aldehydes and these aldehydes um, like 4 uh, hydroxynonenal which is formed off a of linoleic acid it, this is what actually causes oxidized LDL. Uh, it, it actually binds to the ApoB on all ApoB containing lipoproteins. And so now these lipoproteins aren't recognized by the, the LDL receptors. They, they hang out in the blood. And it's really the linoleic acid that gets integrated into HDL, LDL, VLDL that oxidizes and causes atherosclerosis. I mean, linoleic acid itself can actually damage the endothelium and cause an increase in penetration of LDL and VLDL particles into the subendothelium. Um, And and that's not even oxidized linoleic acid. That is just linoleic acid itself is toxic to the endothelium. And then when you get these oxidation products, it's it's dramatically more harmful. And so this is what's causing neurodegenerative diseases. I mean, these, these aldehydes can actually cross-link proteins, cross-link tau protein, and create neurofibrillary tangles. And this has been shown in animal studies that these aldehydes can literally create neurofibrillary tangles that you see in Alzheimer's disease. And so this is what's called advanced lip oxidation end products, (ALEs). Most people know about advanced uh, glycation end products, but these advanced lip oxidation end products are by far much more harmful and is dr- dramatically caused by these consumption of oxidized seed oils.
0: Yeah, I might recommend that if you're a little bit confused on what was just said, is it to replay this because that was really an important summary of the two most common or two of the most common diseases that affect us in our society, which is heart disease and, and neurodegenerative diseases, primarily Alzheimer's. So. I mean, and largely related to this excess consumption of damage, omega 6, linoleic, linoleic acid. Correct. Linoleic, yeah. I still get confused with those things because, <laughs> but anyway, it's linoleic. Yeah. So it's too much of that is is going to be counterproductive through the mechanisms you just cited and, uh, You know, there's a you you consolidated a lot of information in those few paragraphs, but that was a good up-to-date summary. And what's your best speculation as to why, you know, so-called experts uh, in the American Heart Association feel or organization and the you know people who promote promote their work don't understand or accept this? I mean, how are they so confused?
1: Yeah, well, one is they hang their hats on LDL. And so really key, Ancel Keys really showed that these vegetable oils can lower LDL and saturated fats, raise LDL. And so that is still an issue because it's very difficult for any scientist to come out and say... LDL, high LDL is fine. And lowering LDL is not good. They they obviously believe that high LDL is bad. And so, you know, we do know the vegetable oils lower LDL, but they increase the susceptibility of LDL to oxidize. And that's really what they need to understand. Don't worry about the number, what's actually happening to the LDL. And the second thing is what has been confusing prior to Chris Ramsden coming out with his 2010 meta-analysis and his 2013 Mm -hmm. meta-analysis, all the studies combined omega-3 and omega-6 and show that there was indeed benefit if you swapped out animal fats and and you started consuming more omega fats. They never separated, though, the studies that only gave and swapped out omega-6 with animal fats and omega-3s. And Chris Ramsden was the first scientists to do that. And so when he separated the studies out, he actually found that the studies that were animal fats were replaced by these vegetable oils, there was an increase in all cause mortality and coronary heart disease, mortality and cardiovascular events. And so he was the first one to ever do that. And that was as recently as 2010. And then he did an update. He found, um, he looked at the Sydney diet heart study and um, he found, he updated, he found additional, um, you know, uh, evidence from that study updated his meta-analysis found the same thing. And then you have the the Minnesota Coronary Survey, which was hidden in a basement for 30 years. And that was published just a few, few years ago. It really mm-hmm. showed that those who actually had the lowest or the greatest reduction in LDL were at the highest risk of heart disease from consuming these omega-6. And actually the autopsy studies show that the patients that switched from consuming animal fats to the vegetable oils the autopsy study showed a significant increase in heart attacks and that was just a, a couple of years ago that study came out and so that's why i think it's so difficult for people and scientists and the in the lay public to understand because evidence was buried and it's just starting to surface and there was there was kind of poor science being published combining omega-3s and omega-6 and confusing the heck out of people and now you have all these studies underdosing omega-3s and saying omega-3s aren't beneficial anymore when they're, they're still giving them to people who are consuming 20, 30 grams of linoleic acid, and they're they're only giving one gram of omega-3 fish oil and thinking that's actually going to be beneficial. And so they're forgetting all the old studies that actually tested Italians or Japanese who had a low intake of omega-6. Every study that has looked at omega-6 or omega-3 fish oils on a background of low omega-6 has always found dramatic benefit. Mm -hmm. And we know the omega 3 index is super important and we know that getting to 8 to 10% on an omega 3 index reduces your risk of sudden cardiac death by by 10, 90%. and and so there's a confusion and people are worried about omega 3s raising ldl so it's really this whole confusion of what's what's really happened with omega 3 and omega 6 and what's really
0: beneficial. yeah. So it's a good point that's frequently overlooked is that uh, when these studies look at omega-3 supplementation, they don't look at the totality and see what the ratios are. But even if they did, um, you can still have the same problem with omega-3s that you have with omega-6. We go into that in the book. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of omega-3 products are that will, very similar to the industrially processed omega-6 vegetable oils that you grab off a shelf, will do, cause essentially the same problems because they're processed almost identically. So why don't you go into that a bit?
1: Yes. So about 50% of the fish oil on the market has problems with oxidation. Um, from harvesting and getting it into the pill and then um, at what happens during when you store it in, in the shelf life. And like you said, omega-3s and omega-6s are both very susceptible to oxidation. And so... Really, you got to get a product that tests the hydroperoxide levels. And there's a certain, you know, you know I don't think you want more than 5%, but, but the lower the better, obviously. And so a good quality supplement will actually show you the testing of the hydroperoxides in the supplement. And a lot of these fish oils aren't coming from wild fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's an important thing, too, is you really want a supplement that has, is from a wild-sourced fish, and particularly from a fish from an ocean or, or waters that are clean, like Alaska or Canada, is another important. But but honestly, very few supplements source from a good source and use wild uh, seafood to do it.
0: Yeah, a very good point because uh, if you're getting farmed fish, you're they're frequently not giving them fish food that has been essentially raised on algae and other primary sources of food in the ocean, which concentrate the DHA uh, and the EPA. Uh, so if you're eating those types of fish, you won't have the omega-3 content that you need. But uh, even more importantly, I think, is the issue of sustainability. I mean, we've got seven over 7 billion people on the planet, and every human needs omega-3. And there really isn't enough fish in the ocean to supply them with it. It just isn't. So we have to figure out some other resources. You know, that's one of the reasons I like krill, because it is the largest biomass in the world. Uh, And uh, you have to look at sustainability. And um, I think it's the, um, well, the CMLIR, and then there's uh, another organization that escapes me right now that monitors that very carefully to make sure that the krill isn't harvested more than uh, uh, they uh, need to be for sustainability issues and, and, and to sustain the whale population too, because that's their source of food.
1: Yeah. I think they're, they're only allowed to take like 1% or less per year. And so yeah. that that biomass is like you said, the largest biomass in the world and krill is great because it has so many advantages compared to just regular fish oil because mm-hmm. omega threes are bound to phospholipids. And so how we used to get our omega threes, um, back in paleolithic times, mm-hmm. um, even inland, thousands of miles away from the ocean, the only uh, the only animal that could actually obtain the the brain and could break the skull it, besides a human is a hyena. And so we were scavengers. And um, sites were discovered over two million years ago. And human sites with dozens of animal skulls cracked open around them. And so uh, the brain higher in DNA than salmon, uh, up to thirty percent more concentrated, and our ancient ancestors were able to access and scavenge skulls on the African savanna and get tremendous amounts of, of DHA. To give you an example, there's four ounces of get up to 1.5 grams of DHA, um, extremely saturated in cholesterol as well. And so this was a phospholipid-bound DHA that we were getting um, through this. And the absorption, you can't. your brain doesn't absorb DHA without it being bound to uh, phosphatidylcholine. So this is lysophosphatidylcholine that the DHA is bound to. And so when you're consuming fish oil, you know, you got to esterify it and you got to attach it to choline and you, then you try to absorb it. But with krill oil being bound to the phospholipids, you get t- uh, two times the absorption in the brain um, of DHA. So other tissues cool. too. What's that?
0: And your other tissues.
1: Yes, exactly. And particularly the brain though. And you have krill oil has astaxanthin and canthaxanthin. Which are extremely potent carotenoids, and um, astaxanthin can actually span the entire cellular membrane, and so you can prevent oxidation from the inside as well as the outside of the cell. It has vitamin A, vitamin E in it, Um, and I mean, compared to CoQ ten, it's I mean, astaxanthin is just incredible, incredibly powerful on the ORAC level, um, on squelching singlet oxygen, uh, puts CoQ ten to shame. It's like you know dramatically better than, than that. Well, they,
0: they serve different purposes. They
1: serve different purposes. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, um, has his role in, in the mitochondrial electron yeah. transport chain, but uh, no
1: doubt. Um,
0: Xanthan has other roles too.
1: Yep. And you get a good dose of choline from, from krill. Yeah. You, I mean, one gram of krill, you can get 75 milligrams of choline. It's super important for fat, preventing fatty liver and things like that. And, you know, our, we're used to getting uh, our omega-3s bound to phospholipids. So we were getting them, um, you know, through brain, uh, brain consumption, uh, during a couple million years ago and really too, how we used to get our,
0: those are people who lived inland. If they were living on the coast, they were were getting seafood.
1: Correct. They were getting seafood. And then also uh, our consumption of ALA was 10 times what it was today. And Mm -hmm. so how we used to get omega threes, if we weren't getting brain, we weren't getting seafood is we were consuming a tremendous amount of plant material. We were getting 10 to 15 grams of ALA. We only get about two grams nowadays. And so if you look at a, um, a uh, female who is a childbearing age, they can convert over 20% of their ALA to EPA. And
0: they can- uh, the, ALA the-, the ALA being the alpha linolenic acid, yep. which is yep. the omega-3. That's
1: the parent omega-3 in plants, right. yep. And so women of childbearing age can convert over 20% of that ALA, and they were getting 10 to 15 grams to EPA. So they were getting 2 to 3 grams of EPA just from converting all of that ALA. And, the, and they can actually convert almost 10% of that ALA to DHA, which is a long-chain uh, marine omega-3. So they're getting one to one and a half grams of DHA just from the conversion. And so, as a fetus, um, you're getting all of that EPA and DHA through the ALA intake of the mother. And then we, and then back then we breastfed for you know four, up to four years. And so you know DHA is very uh, it gets in the, into the breast milk, and um, it was a tremendous source. And nowadays. DHA in breast milk is not even close to what it needs to be. So to optimize a, a baby's DHA level, it should be anywhere from 08 to 1% DHA in breast milk. And, we, and nowadays, the breast milk only contains 03 to 0.6%. So about three times less than what it needs to be to optimize DHA in, in the fetus.
0: So those are some interesting numbers on the conversion from ALA to the higher-chained omega-3 fats, EPA and DHA twenty uh, percent for a pregnant woman, but the tip—that's not typical. Uh, what is the typical adult, non-pregnant adult who is uh, good? Well, that conversion is a lot lower. I think it's a at lot least lower. order of magnitude lower.
1: Yep. So for most people, you're only going to convert about five percent ALA to EPA and point five percent from yeah. ALA to DHA. And there's so many things now that are happening to us that we don't even realize that's reducing the conversion. And so when you go from 15 grams of linoleic acid to 30 grams, which we're consuming nowadays, that reduces your conversion rate of ALA to EPA and DHA by 40 to 50%.
0: Wow. So So you knock that 0.5 down to 0.25.
1: Exactly. And you also are required, vitamins and minerals are required for these desaturase enzymes. So there's a, there's Mm -hmm. a Delta-6 desaturase that takes linoleic, acid and, and ALA, and starts desaturizing them and elongating them, and there's enzymes that do this to bring them to the longer chain omega-3 and omega-6 fats. They all require minerals and vitamins. And so about 30% of the general population is magnesium deficient, and that is, that is required for the first step in converting ALA and, and linoleic acid to a longer chain omega-3 or a, the, the delta-6 desaturates requires magnesium. And then, really, we're missing these healthy omega 6 conversions. So, GLA, which is found in Borage oil, Black Currant, um, Evening Primrose, those, those oils are very high in what's called gamma linoleic acid. And that is the elongation pro- uh, product of linoleic acid. So, it is in omega 6. But it's a healthy omega-6. And there's been many studies showing that giving GLA or even evening primrose black currant borage oils to rheumatoid arthritis dramatically improves um, inflammation. And the reason is, is because GLA turns into dihomo gamma linoleic acid, DGLA. And off of that omega-6, you have a very healthy prostaglandin E1, which is vasodilates. It's, it has antiplatelet effects, anti-atherosclerotic effects. That conversion of DGLA to prostaglandin E1, which is very healthy and beneficial for us, requires vitamin C and it requires uh, zinc and it requires calcium. And so the lack of vitamin C in our diets is dramatically reducing the conversion of DGLA to this beneficial prostaglandin E1. And this is at the heart of atopic dermatitis, eczema, um, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, ADHD, and things like that. And and so our conversions, our healthy omega-6s and the, and the prostaglandins that are formed from them is part of, you know, the fat fix and the super fuel and all those good things that you need to do and that we're, you know, we're suffering from.
0: Yeah. And another factor, you mentioned 30% were magnesium deficient, but I think it's probably closer to 80% of the population that's magnesium deficient. But a big one that is also 80% of the population has is insulin resistance. And that will clearly slow down and impair delta-6 desaturase from making that conversion.
1: Yep, exactly. Both desaturase enzymes are insulin sensitive. And so um, delta-5 desaturase-2 goes down when you're insulin resistant. Um, and when you have higher insulin levels, you actually form more arachidonic acid and you, you, you shunt DGLA instead of going to that healthy prostaglandin, the higher insulin level shunts it into more arachidonic acid. Um, and so really arachidonic acid isn't bad. I mean, you can form. You
0: you need it. Yeah, you need it. If you have low levels, you have a problem.
1: Exactly. It's the, it's the overall inflammation caused by linoleic acid that upregulates, um, these, these cyclooxygenase and lip oxygenase that attack arachidonic acid and form all these harmful biochemicals from them, which are called eicosanoids, like the two and four series eicosanoids, thromboxane A2, which blood clots, and you have leukotriene B4, which is, you know, asthma and allergies and and all those things.
0: So at the heart of all this is this shift in the fuel supply for development of the prostaglandins, which you've been referencing, which ultimately uh, results in increased inflammation of the body. Yep. So there's a simple test that you can take to see if you're at risk for this. And it's called the high sensitivity or HS for short CRP or C-reactive protein. And it's not that expensive and it's a test that I recommend for almost everyone. And, uh, you'll be surprised at what your numbers are because uh, odds are unless you're super diligent, it's going to be over 1.0. It might be five, six, 10, even higher. But ideally, it should be below 0.5 and even lower if you can. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and if it's not, then you know that you've got, you've made some poor choices, either knowingly or unknowingly in your in your food, or you've got other issues going on too, because there, it's not just the fat that causes it. But that's a leading contributor. And I think the one that most people are confused about.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so, so HCRP our high sensitivity C-reactive protein is kind of like a marker of chronic inflammation. So you need mm-hmm. a inflammation, right? Yeah. Caught, you know, infection, no doubt, but our body has a mechanism. You have to be able to resolve the inflammation. And the way our body does that is through omega-3s. And so you, there's these resolvents and protectants, which they're called SPMs, specialized, um, uh, oh gosh, SPMs, specialized pro-resolving
0: mediators that are mm-hmm. formed off of omega-3s. And yeah. they- these are relatively new. So if you haven't heard of these things, don't be disappointed because these have only been known for a few years. Yeah, exactly.
1: And so this is the body's way of um, actually resolving the important acute inflammation that you need to fight an infection. And when you don't have enough, when your cells aren't saturated with omega-3s, you don't have the ability to suppress that inflammation. And so you have chronic inflammation. This drives a lot of the chronic chronic disease. And you don't know if you have inflamed fat cells. You don't know. I mean, you, you just don't. And so that's the really harmful fat that's killing you is the ectopic, the fat that goes around the liver, the pancreas, the heart, and if you have inflamed fat, and omega-3 deficient fat cells are inflamed fat cells, just bottom line. If you don't have them, you can't form the the resolvins and protectins um, in the fat cell. And so omega-3s are really cool too because they can convert the harmful macrophages type 1, they can shift those to type 2 macro- anti-inflammatory macrophages. And so that's a problem that we have uh, nowadays with uh, thin on the outside, fat on the inside, is this inflamed fat where these macrophages are coming in, they're turning inflammatory, and then your fat cells are releasing inflammatory cytokines causing systemic inflammation. And if you don't have a high amount of omega threes, like in Japan, we have they have an omega three index of 10, 12 percent, which is probably what we should be at. But mm-hmm. it takes four grams of EPA and DHA at least to get to that level. You probably need six grams on a higher background of omega six, like we're consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, this omega three deficiency is affecting well over 80 percent of of the population. No, no, very few people are getting three to four grams, and and that's really what what you need to get the blood pressure lowering effects of omega threes the reduction in triglycerides, the antiplatelet effects, the plaque stabilizing effects. You don't get those at one, two grams. You got to go three to four grams of EPA and DHA. And that's why all these recent studies have been failing, is they're only giving one gram at most of EPA and DHA.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, one of the reasons we collaborate on this, writing this book, is that it's such a good addition to the Fat for Fuel book, which is my last book. Uh, You know, obviously it's Focus is to helping your body relearn how to burn fat as your primary fuel because most of the people in the United States have lost that ability, and they're pretty much only burning carbohydrates, which is loaded with negative adverse health consequences. So um I think you laid a pretty good argument for uh minimizing industrial processed omega-6, but we do need some. And this, as we mentioned, it's not hard to get, but um I like my primary sources of omega six to be whole foods. I mean, really whole foods like seeds. That's what, you know that. I mean, you can, you can get it in vegetables. There's not a lot though. Seeds have a far higher concentration. So I take a tablespoon of uh, a whole variety of seeds. And there are some seeds that don't have a lot of omega six, like like flaxseed and chia seeds and hemp seeds. But almost all the other plant seeds do have omega six. So uh, that's one of my favorites, and what what are some of yours for the omega six?
1: Yeah, no, I mean uh, seeds, like you said, absolutely um, and nuts too. Yeah, it seeds be, and nuts. It depends on the
0: nut. It depends on the nut, like walnuts, be higher in omega three, but they still have plenty of omega six. Still plenty of omega six. Yep,
1: And you're right. I mean, if you if you're getting omega six, you're going to want it in a whole food package
0: with vitamins, minerals, yeah. and all the whole that. deal not a okay. processed oil.
1: Yeah. And in, in regards to the ketogenic diet. So, I mean, most people don't understand wh- how omega-3s, how important they are to building muscle, improving exercise and burning fat. And so to give you an example, if you replace just six grams of visible fat in your diet, let's say on a fatty steak and you take six grams of fish oil, one study showed just in three weeks, they lost two pounds of fat, gained a half a pound of muscle. Um, and the reason is is because omega-3s, particularly DHA, is the pacemaker of the cell. And so the reason why hummingbirds can beat their wings 80 times a second is because they can saturate their wings with DHA. And DHA makes the cell membrane so fluid that molecules like uh, amino acids, glucose, sodium, potassium, they fly in and out of the cell. And the same thing happens in humans. So when you consume a high amount of omega-3s, about three to four grams is what's needed, you create a a cell membrane that is super saturated DHA very fluid and now your basal metabolic rate goes up 15 percent your beta oxidation in the liver during exercise your fat burning during exercise goes up by 30 percent consuming high amounts of omega-3s and even at rest your your beta oxidation goes up by 20 percent so long chain omega-3s are important for ketogenic diets because you become a better fat burning machine It's affecting the machinery, the beta oxidation in the liver. It's improving that by activating genes. And then the other omega-3, plant omega-3, alpha-linolenic acid, is a ketogenic substrate. So it doesn't get stored like the marine omega-3s. It can be converted into ketones. So MCT oil is great too, but a lot of people don't realize plant omega-3 kind of serves a little
0: bit similarly in that way. Well, it's it's a much bigger molecule. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, 18 carbons, whereas... uh... You know, MCTs are 8 and 10 carbons.
1: Exactly. Yep. And MCTs are great, too, for fat loss. Um, You know, meta-analysis of randomized studies show that MCTs, compared to long-chain saturated fats, so we're talking about heavy cream, uh, butter, it Mm -hmm. does significantly reduce um, waist circumference, visceral adiposity, because it doesn't get stored. It gets burned for ketones. Yeah. Um, But the reason why omega-3s are good for fuel is because they suppress inflammation in the brain. And so what happens in a a cognitive declining brain is you're not able to utilize glucose well because of the inflammation. So DHA helps squelch the inflammation and your brain is able to utilize glucose better when you're consuming more omega-3s. And you're actually able to produce more ketone bodies when you're consuming both parent omega-3 and the long-chain EPA and DHA. So you become a better ketogenic you know, machine in a way when you're consuming high amounts of omega-3s. And what's the mechanism there? Well, uh, so it upregulates genes that activate beta oxidation in the liver. So you burn fat better with omega-3s. Your basal metabolic rate goes up because the cell membrane is so fluid. And so um, your ability to uh, get amino acids and glucose in and out of the cell are better. Your inflammation goes down. So you become a better fat burning machine. Um, And so... Actually, omega-3s help synthesize protein better too. So muscle protein synthesis dramatically goes up when you consume three, four grams of omega-3s because amino acids, again, are flying in and out of the cell way faster when they're saturated with DHA. And so studies have shown in middle-aged adults as well as in uh, elderly, consuming three grams of DHA increases muscle strength, increases your maximum amount that you're able to rep Um, your grip strength is improved. So this is an important fat to help prevent sarcopenia, which is a trim. This is, this is a a very big issue where elderly people, they're not even able to carry a milk carton, um, you know, throughout the grocery store. And, and really the the omega threes is what's going to hopefully help prevent a lot of this sarcopenia that's happening or muscle loss during aging.
0: Yeah, it's a major issue when you're frail. That's one of the things if you're into your 60s and 70s that you really want to focus, actually you should do it in your 40s and 50s, is to focus on is you don't, You really want to avoid being frail and the and, uh, loss of muscle would be probably the primary contributor to that and, loss, and then you lose your mobility too. So that's a one-two bad combination. So where do we get these omega-6s? We had already talked about the concern about many of the fish oils uh, and other sorts of omega three supplements with, with the krill. But there are other sources too. And there are, of course, people are vegetarians or vegans, and they d- will refuse to have, uh, fish or fish sources of it. So they're really stuck with, uh, essentially algae sources. So I'm wondering if you can comment about that and especially the distribution of the EPA and DHA and how that might be problematic.
1: Yeah, so you're looking for sources of yeah,
0: non fish sources or omega frills.
1: three or omega three right? omega three. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of, kind of mentioned chia, hemp, flax seeds are all very high in omega three. Well,
0: okay. Yeah. The, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Of course, from the plants. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, I, actually, that was more referring to the EPA and the DHA because, as you mentioned earlier, you know, if you're not unless you're a pregnant woman, you're only going to be converting like 0.5 percent of that ALA. To the, to the DHA. Yeah. And you yeah. need a lot more of that. It's, you're going to have to have a, a load of omega-3, of ALA to, to produce significant therapeutic levels.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, so that's a good point. If you're not eating seafood, how do you get EPA and DHA?
0: Right. Yes.
1: Well, it's difficult. Um, you can get algal oil, right, from algae. Um, that can give you – that's probably your best way to get it,
0: to be honest. And is the, does that have EPA and DHA in it?
1: Uh, I think it's higher in EPA. I think most algae have like a two to one ratio of EPA to DHA, but it, it of course depends
0: on the algae. Yeah. Because um, the, cause you definitely want to have some EPA. You just don't want, even though DHA is probably the more important one, it's like anything in life. If you don't get the right balance, you're going to be running into complications. So you do need EPA too.
1: Yeah. Just a
0: mistake trait, DHA. And that's a mistake. I think they started, there was was a company, MarTech, that I think they had had cornered the market on supplementing uh, infant formula with uh, their DHA. And it was just DHA. There was no EPA. And it still may be for a lot. I I haven't looked at it for a number of years now, but it's, it's a big issue for infant formula.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, EPA is more of the, I like to think of EPA as the circulating omega-3 in the bloodstream more, whereas DHA is more stored in the heart and the brain. That's kind of how I like to view both of them. So reducing uh, inflammation out in the systemic circulation is more EPA's role in the red blood cells and things like that. And DHA is more brain heart. And so if, you, if your cells aren't saturated with DHA, especially in the cardiomyocyte, you're going to have a significant problem because, um, you know, the antiplatelet effects of omega-3s are extremely important. Um, and, and EPA has, serves different roles. And, you know, the EPA, DHA, like you said, is a little bit more beneficial in regards to lipids. So that's what lowers triglycerides and creates a more buoyant LDL. Um, EPA does have some of those effects, but not nearly as much as DHA, but it's important to get both. Um, they both yeah. serve different
0: roles. What's always amazed me when I was in practice, uh, and I would see it frequently, is people come in with uh, elevated fasting triglycerides. I mean, 500, 1,000, 2,000. You could tell because when you spin the blood down, the serum, which is normally clear, translucent yellow, uh, was cloudy, looked like milk. (laughs) And uh, all that most of those people needed was just to restrict carbohydrates because they were absolutely insulin resistant. And uh, you remove uh, carbohydrates from their diet and, and resolve the insulin, improve the insulin sensitivity, and the triglycerides would improve dramatically. And that's a really important um, risk factor for heart disease this high triglycerides. Right. Because it's really just a marker of insulin resistance, to be honest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the book comes out November 13th. And uh, you'll want to, if, if you if found this fa- conversation fa- uh, interesting, then please get the book because there's a lot more details in it. And it will really help you more carefully and clearly understand your choice of these really vital, important Uh, nutrients and make sure you're choosing the right ones and avoiding the ones that are going to cause harm and damage all right so thank you for joining us and uh, and uh, look forward to uh, you picking up the book and exploring it even further